times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode with a dear friend of mine, someone who I have meaningful and deep conversations with on a regular basis. But before I get to her, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills with today's guest. And at Strong Skills, we are on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. So one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I truly have been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Today's guest, her husband is actually a tennis player, and he talks about the book, and it's one of the fulfilling elements of my career thus far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, it would mean a ton if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach of the podcast. And thanks to all of you who continue to support us on a regular basis. Now to today's guest. Grace Aduroja Kolker is a friend of mine. She is someone I look up to. I consider her to be a mentor. She's a coach. She is somebody who is just extremely, extremely wise when it comes to things like communication and emotional intelligence and diversity, equity, inclusion, and decision-making. She is somebody who I've sent many, many friends to to get coached. They have vouched for her. And she is someone who facilitates dialogue with me on a regular basis and helps me be the best version of myself. She is also a lawyer by trade. So she's going to talk about her background in law and why she didn't continue down that path of being a practicing lawyer. She also has a journalism background. So she is somebody who's had to ask questions for legal purposes, had to ask questions as a journalist and as somebody who is just 
ridiculously curious. She is someone who is amazingly inquisitive and she's a leadership coach. She is someone who holds space for people, develops people, and also facilitates conversations in group experiences. Grace is someone who I look up to. She is someone who makes me wiser and better at my job. And we often co-facilitate together. So companies will hire us to come in and to teach them skills to help their people develop. And then she also has what we call a high potential accelerator where she will work with individuals one-on-one. So if you're interested in that or you're interested in learning more about what we do at Strong Skills, you can email me. My email is brian at strongskills.co and we can connect you with Grace or myself or potentially both of us. So thanks to all of you who continue to support Strong Skills and Grace has been a big force behind what we are doing at Strong Skills. So with that, I'm so pumped to introduce you to my friend, Grace Aduroja Kolker. Grace, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is going to be fun. Grace and I co-facilitate together. We do a lot of professional work together. And I think I was thinking about this months ago. I was like, gosh, I would love to share Grace with the Intentional Performers podcast community. So here we go. Uh, And Grace, as we were sort of talking off air, I was trying to figure out, all right, where do we start? And you said, wow, well, 2013 was like the worst year of my life. Um, But it also led to you sort of going toward this world of of growth and discovery and potentially coaching. So give us a little more context because I don't really know about what happened. Yeah, it's like, it's so perfect because it is, um, you know, I think people always want breakthroughs. um, And what I found is that, breakthroughs don't usually come without breakdowns. And so um, 2013 was just a big breakdown year. And also thank you so much for having me. Like uh, this is like a legit podcast. And when you asked me to like be on it, I was like, what? I've like listened to it. It feels like going on Oprah after watching it for years. So well, we're not going to make you cry. Maybe we will. <laughs> Maybe we'll go Oprah style. Uh, and Dr. Phil is not coming out. It's just a total. So well, it's fun. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So 2013 was just this year. I've been somebody who followed the rules. You know, when I was eight years old, I told my third grade teacher I was going to be a lawyer. Um, That warmed the cockles of the heart of my Nigerian parents. And then, you know, I kind of did that and had been just kind of collecting accolades and then was at my super large law firm, um, you know, uh, and, you know, making good money, was not happy, got my review, it wasn't going well. Um, what was, what was negative in the review? It was just, it had been like a couple of years of just, um, you know, I had been a profess- professional journalist. I, I started my career, I was the youngest reporter at the Chicago Tribune, and I kept getting this feedback about my writing, and I would do this, and I'd do that, I'd get this book, I was trying everything. And they just were saying that like my legal writing wasn't up to snuff. And uh, it's pretty devastating because for me, I wasn't attached to my writing looking one way or the other. Um, And I just wanted to perform. um, And I just wasn't performing. Um, Grace, Grace, so if we back up a little bit, you're clear at eight years old, you say, I'm going to be a lawyer. Parents are excited and happy. Um, Why go into journalism instead of law initially? Great question. So I went into journalism. My dad's a professor 
And he had said, you know, don't major in poli sci. I really wanted to major in political science. He said, don't do that. Cause if you don't have like a master's or a PhD, it's hard to find a career with that. And so he said, you should really pick a major that um, where you could get a job. And, and he meant engineering <laughs> and I chose journalism. So that was really how I ended up with journalism. I loved writing and it never occurred to me. We watched the news every night as a family. Um, I read the newspaper as a kid. It never occurred to me that like I could actually do that job. And uh, probably my junior year of high school, after my dad said that, I started like writing for the local paper. I started working at the Ann Arbor News on Fridays, and uh, that was it. I was I caught the journalism bug. And then, yeah. so why not stay that path? You're you said you're the youngest person in the Chicago Tribune. It seems like you're you're on that path. Why pivot, so to speak, or, or go into law? You know, it's, you know, I was just intentional about being a lawyer. Like it just, I think I wouldn't have been satisfied. So I was at the Tribune for four years and I loved it. I call it my master's degree. I love the people I work with, but I didn't have like a desire to win a Pulitzer. Everyone around me did. Like it was like they wanted to uncover things. I liked talking to people and getting to know their stories, but I didn't have the ego um, around it to like, you know, want to be like a columnist or something someday. I, I guess I could have. And it just, I think I wouldn't have been satisfied without like seeing the law thing out. I just had always, you know, it would have just been a dream, um, like deferred. Were you getting, were you getting feedback that your writing was strong at the Chicago Tribune? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was why I rose. I mean, I went there, they had this program called a residency program, this two-year residency. We made peanuts. I thought it was a ton of money at the time. Um, uh, yeah, I, I can say what it was. It was like 38.5. And I remember when they said 38.5 and I was like, dad, I'm not coming home. <laughs> it was just, so, you know, we made that money. Um, I got four days off total for the year, no holidays. And it was like this medical residency where you were just taking names and they put me on the night desk. And so I was working from four to midnight and I loved it. I was out with the cops is like murders, shootings. I didn't think I would love it because I'm kind of girly. Um, but I love just um, being in the thick of things. And um, it was, it was my writing and my tenacity. Yeah. But, but you say, Hey, I, I want to pursue law. That's what I've always dreamed of and what I want to do. So let's fast forward back to that review. So you get feedback now that your writing isn't up to snuff from a legal standpoint. What did that feel like for you to get that? I think you said devastated earlier, but you, you've got a journalism background. You've been told at the Chicago Tribune that you can write. And now there's a law firm that's saying, well, maybe you can write, but you can't write like what we need you to write. What, what did that feel like? You know, I think some of it was devastating. Some of it was frustrating. Um, to Is be honest. True? Was it true? I think that there's some confirmation bias that comes into it. I think, you know, they've done studies on writing in the law. Uh, and I, I don't want to throw the firm under the bus because, you know, I, I, I think that there's ways that my writing could have improved, right? Um, and at the same time, I think, you know, there have been studies done on attorneys of color um, where they've sent, they, they did this one. It was not, I mean, it's not peer reviewed or anything, but they sent out um, writing that they said for the same writing sample, they sent it out to partners at firms, had them grade it. Half of them, they said it was written by, um, they, you know, gave the profile of a white associate that the other half, they gave a profile of a black associate and 
the scores were markedly different in how they uh, described the piece, et cetera. So um, I don't think that that was everything. I was definitely getting coaching on writing, looking at books, because it was like, for me, I don't have an ego around my writing. As a journalist, you're frequently having to change because you work with so many different editors. Um, I think that maybe they didn't like the strength of my arguments, the way I was thinking things through. There were courses where I got the top grade in law school um, when it was blindly graded. And so that was what was, you know, it was a, it was a really frustrating time. It was a really frustrating time. So looking back, you think it might be confirmation bias, but when you're in it, were you thinking, gosh, this is some racist bullshit? Like what, what are you, what are you thinking of? I'm serious. Like when you're in it, when you're in it, like what, what was going through your head? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. I'm just a performer. Right. And so even at the Tribune, I remember a lot of the black reporters had issues and they'd say things and I just, I just performed. It's not like your racism is not my your racism is not my problem. It's not my business, really, is the way I look at it. And I think I have like two amazing, strong Nigerian parents. I think my parents growing up in a society where everyone looked like them and got things done um, was really beneficial. Um, and so I think in, in it, I there were moments where I would think that, but really, I just was like, whatever it is, I want to perform. So, so like, you're focused I, on solving it. You're focused, I'm going to figure it out. Um, whatever it is, it's not good enough. I'm getting the feedback. So I, you were really solution driven rather than saying, oh, why me? What's this happening? This is BS. It wasn't that it was, all right, let's see what I can do. Then, and you went toward that. 100%. It was just that I, I could, I could, I could wallow in what was unfair, but it just, it wasn't really there for me to do that. And, and the truth is I made mistakes. So some of it, I actually understood. It was like, yeah, there, there are mistakes I made in, and written product. And this is just, it was a high, high octane, high performer environment. And so I was just focused on how do I shift the narrative? And in retrospect, it's like the best thing that ever happened to me. All right. We're going to get to transitions and, and mm -hmm. what happens after that, but I want to stay here for a minute because mm -hmm. race is something that we talk a lot about together. Yeah. And one of the elements that I'm fascinated by when it comes to race in the United States is that, look, <laughs> there's inequality in the United States if people don't know. Like, and, and there's injustice, which is probably a, a better word to even describe it because in some ways there's always going to be inequality in a capitalist society. But justice, we should all be striving for. And I don't think this is a controversial statement to say that we have a good amount of research that says that racism exists in our country and things are often harder for people of color than they are for people that are white. Okay. And one of the things I'm really curious about is where we go from here and how we make things better. And one of the things I don't know the answer to, and, and we talk a lot about it is if you have a black community and they are learning about white privilege, for example, how does that impact the black community? And how do we acknowledge that our environments and our ecosystems and our schools are not the same and they should be, um, and they should, I think they, they absolutely should be equal in public schools. How do we acknowledge the differences while still empowering those people from the community to be solution-minded? Like, cause I think we can do both, right? I, in my mind, 
It's like, hey, we need to acknowledge the differences in these ecosystems and these environments. And we as a society have an obligation and responsibility to create just ecosystems. And how do we also encourage people within those ecosystems, kind of like you did, to say, yeah, this is BS and let's try to see what I can do, like to thrive, to find a way. Am I making sense? Because I see your uh, eyes. Yeah, going. perfectly. I just... It's such a good question. I, I don't know the answer, but I think first and foremost is acknowledging the differences. So I think when people don't feel like they're crazy, that is one step in the right direction. Um, I, if we're talking about privilege, I have the privilege of the, the parents and the family that I grew up with where I did see a lot of role models. I mean, all of our, the people in our circle of friends, you know, my, my dad was getting his PhD when I was born. And um, so we grew up um, on and around University of Michigan campus. And I grew up with other Nigerian and African families where that was the same thing. So um, being solution oriented or performance oriented probably came from my parents and I didn't yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think that the sometimes the um, the pushback in in your question, the the resistance to your question is that the acknowledgement doesn't happen, and then the onus on the people who are disadvantaged is disproportionately the focus. So it's like, okay, you've got to focus on it performing, and you've got to keep you know pushing against the powers that be, and there is a there it can be exhausting. Like my experience with that was pretty exhausting because it was, it kept feeling like I was pulling this boulder and pushing a boulder up a hill and nobody was helping. And for me, it was the only thing that was confounding about it was, okay, I'd gotten that, I'd gotten feedback about, I remember one time um, an editor at the Tribune didn't think I was tenacious enough about going down and chasing down a fact. And I remember the it was a black woman. She was an editor. And she said, this editor says that you're not tenacious enough. And I was like, wait, no, he's got a nickname. He loves my work. And, and I, and this is what happened. She was like, grace just change his mind. That was the guidance and it was done. And so I think that's the way, um, yeah, I'm not even sure why I share that, but it's, so I think, you know, cause so for me, historically, it was just, I just got it done. And so all of a sudden, this was there was this situation where I just wasn't getting it done. And it was very frustrating. So as you're going through this process, and it sounds like it feels almost kind of lonely and, um, you know, maybe uncertainty or maybe do I belong or doubt or questioning what is going through your mind during that time? You're getting this feedback. You're at this amazing law firm with super achievers. Um, what did What did you decide? How did you take it from there? Um, you know, I think I, I kept trying to do what I was doing. Um, yeah, I think I, I pushed, I pushed straight till the end. Um, but I think I started to feel like it, it just was a crisis of confidence, to be really honest. Um, and in retrospect, I can really see, um, yeah, I, there was a rootedness that I still didn't have. And there was like a lot of my worth was through achievement. And so, there was some level of resilience and also just um, understanding of who I am that, that didn't happen. I don't know. That wasn't there at the time. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Were there, you hadn't had failure 
before like what were what were the failures before then it, you, you know you're achieving you're going to law school you're doing well at law school um like did you have failures before that or was this the first time where you were really hit with it and like oh wait grace you might not be a special you know a special unicorn over here special <laughs> like is this the first time snowflake i thought yeah, i was snowflake unicorn snowflake you know same thing i prefer unicorn personally yeah, but yes i love that um you know that's interesting I, it's funny. I think I didn't have a great stomach for failure. Um, I remember I got a grade in law school that wasn't that great. I was devastated. Um, I went to University of Michigan Law School. So I, my parents lived nearby. I drove home from my apartment and I was crying. It was like, it was like the worst thing ever. And I remember at like maybe midnight or 1am crawling into my parents' bed and my dad was like, get out of my bed. This is my bed with my wife. You're not getting a divorce. Life will go on. If you need to sleep with somebody, go and sleep with your sister. <laughs> and like, that was, he was just like this. It's good that you're having some failure. It's time. So please, if this were a divorce, maybe there are going to be, there are more devastating things in life. You got a bad grade. <laughs> and so I think you're right. It was just, yeah, I, 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 if I have the ability for myself to turn out and produce a result, I'm absolutely going to do it. And so, yeah, this is the first time where I just felt like I can't produce the result. And, you know, my parents are pretty religious. And so my mom always says like, you know, what God has for you, nobody can take from you. And if it ain't meant for you, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to make it, to make it happen. And I, I just think um, I still continued with the law for a couple of years after that. Um, I'm so glad I have the legal training, but I had always said I wanted to go to law school to think like a lawyer. And I think really what was there was I didn't have the courage to step out and discover what it was that I was meant to do. And so I was sticking to the law because there were golden handcuffs. It felt very comfortable. I like to be able to walk in a room and say I worked at a firm. I love to be able to walk in a room and say I worked at the firm where I was working. And um, I didn't have a sense of identity outside of achievement. Why was 2013 the worst year ever? It was like that I got, it was that bad review came May 5th, which is my dad's birthday. I, that same week, my very best friend was um, diagnosed with ovarian cancer and they said it was stage four. Um, and then also that week, I think I think it was my aunt died in Nigeria. It was just like that whole thing was like, it was like that week. It was like every, it just so much came all at once. And it was like, my friend was having surgery. So I got that review. And the next week I like flew out to be with my friend at the surgery like that. There was no question. Um, and she's fine now when they went in, they realized it wasn't cancer. It was something else. Um, uh, but it was just that year was just a year of, like you said, dealing with failure and with, okay, if my life isn't going in this direction, what is my life for? And I had also had a falling out with a different friend who'd been my best friend since 15 and we just couldn't make it work. And I just, it was just, it just felt like my whole support system wasn't what it was. And I just hadn't like my sense of self, I felt so rudderless. I felt rudderless. You know, it's interesting. 2014 for me there was a week where I tore my ACL playing basketball there was some family stuff that went on and we had a you know a pipe burst in like you know in our house 
and it all happened within like three days. Mm-hmm. And I've never thought about like, oh, is that my worst year? It was a week, but the the pipe thing got fixed. It wasn't a big deal. But the other two things were scarring, like literally a physical scar with the ACL and then some family scars. And I'm just thinking about how our scars impact us. Um, mm. And I'm wondering about that. And I'm, and then I'm wondering, like people say things come in threes. Like that was a, those three things happened within three days, I think. And I, you know, I don't know where I stand on spirituality and why things happen, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, my ACL and the family thing were like two of the toughest things that I've gone through. Um, so it's interesting. Now I'm just reflecting and thinking about, I'm not sure those changed. Well, the family stuff changed how I operate and how I navigate the world for sure. The knee does physically, like how I navigate, like it still hurts and it still bothers me at times. Um, but it is interesting to think about how scars or adversity impact us. Um, yeah, for me, it's like, I think I had always thought of like feedback or criticism as like, okay, what are you going to do with it now? Like I, I, you know, I did sports in high school and I think one of the the best compliments I ever got was a coach who said, you know, I was a high jumper. And my high jump coach was like, you know, the thing that's really good about you, Grace, is I put the coaching, you put it in, and then I give you another piece of coaching and you add it to the thing that you did before. You don't forget the last thing, right? So I think typically adversity, um, it was that. And I think it was just years of trying at the firm and just feeling like I was failing. And also I knew on some level, I've been saying to my parents, like, I think it's like time to go. I want to pivot. Um, and they just kept kind of, well, but you're doing okay. And you'll just keep working and, you know, it's early on and, um, you'll find your footing. And so I think it was like, I also still wasn't listening to my inner voice. Like, you know, our culture is very, very hierarchical. And so it's like, you know, you follow your authority who, like, if somebody's a day older than you, you don't call them by their first name, like a day older. And so I was still not listening to kind of my own inner compass. And so I think it just was, it was just a year. 2013 was a year where I started to actually become an adult and not just defer to what the guidance of my parents and what I thought would make them proud. And so it just, you know, it was the closest I came to like a teenage rebellion and just had to start like asking myself some tough questions and mourning the life I thought I had and really starting from the ground up on the life I actually wanted. And so, you know, I left the firm after about a year and went to another firm. Still wasn't like, what I really wanted to do is work in crisis communications and be like Olivia Pope. Uh, Still didn't have the cojones to like fully step into that, um, but worked at another firm and started doing professional development work you know, I ended up doing the Landmark Forum and that completely altered. Um, how, every- did you dis- how did you discover Landmark? Yeah, so it was um, the headhunter. So I was, you know, it was, I knew I needed to go. I was starting to look and, you know, at, when you're an associate at a law firm, at a large law firm, you're getting calls from headhunters every, almost daily. Um and so, but one headhunter called and just called in a different way. Um, 
she called about a specific position and thought that I would be a fit and talked about who I'd be working with and then said she wanted to meet with me to make sure that it was actually going to be a fit. And she was phenomenal. I, I left that meeting and said to my mom, she's going to find me my next job. And she's somebody who's still in my life. She was at my wedding. Um, she's, I, I consider her family. Um, but I went to the next firm and it was not immediately just was like, okay, this is not a fit. And I think I'm not meant to keep being like a large law firm attorney. Like I, I was, and so I told her, you know, she came and met me, you know, after I'd been there for a week or two. And I said, yeah, I think, and I'm not sure, but how long do I need to stay so that you can keep your commission? Cause I, you know, I like, I try to do right by people. And she's like, I don't care about that. She's like, I, she said this weird statement that now, um, I get, and I, I have uttered it, but she said, like, I'm a stand for you to just have fulfillment. And I was like, a stand for me. Okay. Weird. But I, why? Because everybody to me is always looking for their angle, what they can get. And so she put me with a career coach. She paid for it through her company and her and the career coach had done landmark and just said, Hey, we think you'd be game for this. And she was willing to pay for me to do landmark. And I was like, no, I, I make money. I'll, I'll pay for it. And so I just thought three days, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, and I didn't think it would work for me. It was really funny. The career coach was like, you know, call me on Sunday. That's like, there's the big conversation of the forum then. And I was like, okay. I was like, I will call you, but I'm just letting you know, I might not get it. Like the big thing that's supposed to happen for everybody just might not happen for me. I'm just letting you know. And she's like, and that's the way you're living your life, isn't it? And I was like, oh, yeah. Cause it was like, all my friends had relationships. Everybody else had fulfillment. Like, but I was the one who wasn't going to have the kids and the husband and the house and that joy. Like it just wasn't going to happen. And so she said a mouthful. I totally got it. Uh, that Sunday called her beautiful, um, and you know, now I lead programs with landmark, but it's really, cause I want to give other people like the beauty that I got. Um, and that just, it was life altering for me. Grace, if people aren't familiar with landmark, can you give them a little background on, on what it is? Yeah. Like landmark. So it's just, it's a global personal professional development, um, uh, course. They've got lots of courses, like 50 different courses, but they're kind of their seminal course is the landmark forum. It's a three-day, two-evening um, conversation where you basically hunt for blind spots in your life and learn how to hunt for other blind spots in your life so that you can ongoingly kind of see the things that are impeding your performance. So a lot of athletes do it, CEOs do it, um, people who are you know in the corporate world do it, but then people also get a lot of per personal benefits. So for me, I had a lot of professional benefits and then I had a lot of personal benefits. So um, yeah, for me, it's been probably one of the most impactful things I've done in my life. You said earlier that you had a crisis of confidence at the big law firm. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you were able to gain confidence. Even now you're like, yeah, now I lead for landmark forums. What have you done to cultivate your confidence? And I don't lead the forum. I lead other programs. The forums are amazing and I don't have that much training, but I do lead uh, this program called self-expression and leadership program. Um, and what did I do to gain my confidence? It's a really great question. What did I do to gain my confidence? Um, I think that a lot of the, I have been, I think on this journey of growth, I have been um, really 
starting to master the, the thoughts and the feelings that happen. Like, I'm not ever going to be able to stop my thoughts. I'm not going to ever be able to stop my feelings. Um, but I always say to like my clients, the way that we deal with our thoughts and feelings, it's like if we caught a fart in a jar and then like we got really fascinated about it, right? Like if you caught your farts in a jar and you just like, oh my gosh, look at this. And it smells like green. And you know, you wouldn't do that. And it sounds crazy. Um, but our thoughts are that automatic and generated. They're like our nails growing or our heart beating. We can't stop them. But a lot of times we have like these nasty thoughts, like you're jealous of somebody and you go to sabotage them. Like you don't have to give in to that thought. Um, or I have a thought, I have lots of thoughts. Like I can't do this right. Imposter syndrome. Like I'm not good enough. Or why would they have me do this? I say yes anyways, right? Probably if you'd asked me to do this five years ago, I'd have been like, I have nothing to talk about. Um, And then I would have said no. And then I would have ruminated on it. And now I'm just like, you know what? If Brian thinks that like I can do his podcast, I can do his podcast. And I'll set those thoughts aside. Um, Yeah. And so I think it's, yeah, I just am no longer willing to catch my farts in a jar and get fascinated by them. <laughs> Does that make sense? I think so. I think I got it. But there's this like influencer now that's like selling her farts as an NFT, which is a whole <laughs> different conversation. But uh, it sounds as if, hey, I'm slowing that. I'm slowing my thoughts down. I'm creating space. I'm creating space between my feelings and, and my action. And um, with that space, with that slowing down. Um, it doesn't mean that thoughts and feelings don't come. Like I always say, there's primary thoughts and primary feelings and then secondary feelings and secondary thoughts. And I try to make a distinction between thoughts and thinking. All right. Thoughts are what come in. Thinking is what we do with them. And Mm. we don't control the thoughts, but we can control the thinking. And I give an example. Yeah. I tell myself, Hey, if Brian thinks that I'm able to do this podcast, then let's do it. Were you anxious coming on to the podcast today? No. I actually almost tried to get myself there. And then I was like, no, I'm just going to be with Brian. I actually took a nap before, but I did have a moment where I was like, oh, you should prepare. You should like all these thoughts. And then I was like, no, I think we'll be good. It's been interesting as we've collaborated and facilitated. We did one yesterday for a company Mm -hmm. in the beginning, you know, you're learning how to work with me and I'm learning how to work with you. And I think in the beginning, there was anxiety on both of our parts and nerves on both of our parts about preparation and making sure we're good. And then I think about what we did yesterday where we co-create this program, you know, we go over it, then we go over it again, but then both of us, like, for example, yesterday, we couldn't get the breakout rooms to work and we just roll with it. And um, that flexibility and agility, I've seen you grow tremendously in the short time that I've been with you. And I think I have too. like, I think my capacity to realize like, you're probably not going to perfect technology ever. Like right. it just doesn't happen. Even during our recording today, you told me, Hey, my, my one-year-old son is taking a nap. He might start crying, start crying. We hit pause. We take care of the baby, get back on the horse. Let's keep going. And I think so often people are trying to perfect the performance and I think one of the things we do a good job of is we really try to perfect the preparation. And, you know, I obviously wrote about this in my book, you know, perfect the preparation so that you can be adaptable in performance. And so yesterday when we're doing a talk on curiosity, I think our capacity to then be curious and find, all right, what's the opportunity that exists here and perform 
allows us to be successful. Any thoughts on that as I sort of reflect on what we do to mm-hmm. get together? It's, it's what I love about working with you is I think you're right. We perfect our prep. We are meticulous. We overthink it. We dissect it. We look at how do we have like, how are we intentional about how we like have the conversation, facilitate things to move forward. Um, and then I love, then we just dance. We dance with what's there. We dance with interruptions. We dance with the technology and you and I just, neither of us have anything going on about it. And so I think it, it, I think being on facilitations with us, it's like um, an exhale because I think that we're both just comfortable um, and there isn't an expectation of perfection. And I think in that we probably land on perfection every once in a while. I agree with you. You mentioned Landmark being a game changer for you. Coming out of that, where are you? So you have that call on Sunday. You feel like, oh, this is pretty transformational for me. You sort of have this aha moment that it's like, yeah, nothing works out for me. It's not going to work out. And then it's like, oh, maybe I need to be thinking about things a little differently. Where did you come out of that on? What, What came next for you? Yeah, I kept doing, um, they had different programs and I, so I kept identifying different blind spots and I keep, I mean, the thing is like, we're like, you, you always say we're meaning making machines. We are. And so I will, I keep creating new ones. It's I'm, I'm human. Um, but I started to discover some real big ones that, um, if I look back at the law firm, some of it probably derailed my performance, like a big one, And I operated with it like a truth. And now what I do is I share it over and over again so that it doesn't lock in and become a truth. Um, But like um, uh, a big one is like, I don't matter. And that's like, it's like a tape that plays, right? And there's ways that it shows up um, in the way that I show up in life. Or if- Grace, I don't matter to who? So I don't matter full stop. So if I'm, if you ask my husband, Andy, if we get in an argument, um, nine times out of, he will, he has said, he'll say, and this doesn't mean you don't matter. Like he knows that that's my, that's the stuff. Like I will filter his actions through a lens of, wow, he doesn't think I matter. And it's not true. He just wants to go watch tennis, right. Or whatever it is. Um, you know, does that make that's, sense? That's where you go. You go to a place of, I don't matter. I'm not valuable. Um, interesting. How do you- I don't how, matter if, or people don't like me. That's another big one. People don't like me. Mm-hmm. If he's not there, if you have that in your head, what do you do to combat that? That's a great question. It's And here's what I would say is it's not always, It's I don't realize that. Like, it just feels like something's unfair. Um, the thing I do to combat it is I share it over and over and over again, because it's, it is to go back to the fart thing. It's a fart that I act like it's interesting, but it's just this automatic generation. So I can now look, I, I'm rarely, if ever that upset, but I know now when I'm upset that that may be operating in the background or I'm unlovable might be there, or people don't like me might be there. And it's not what's actually happening. Like what's happening is somebody's doing something and I'm seeing it through a filter of those things. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, so it's either that or like, we've even had, there was like one time where you gave me feedback and it wasn't even, um, it wasn't bad feedback at all. It was actually really good feedback. And I just said, oh, what I'm doing right now is 
thinking I messed up and did it. And then I just said it to you. And then you're like, yeah, that's not what happened. And then it was done. And so that's, do, do you think that helped you become an achiever that, that desire to be well-liked that desire to achieve that desire to feel valued. Do you think that got you to where you were, where you're crushing it in school and you're at this big law firm? Like, cause it sounds like it probably played a role in a positive way for a lot of your life, which is probably why you kept doing it. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Like, so that was something that I, that was something I discovered, right. Is that all of that, if I don't matter, then I am like, I was just churning at demonstrating value, my value, just churning, 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 churning. And if people don't like me, then I'm just churning to be out there and have accolades. And, and it was all very um, empty, like it lacked any fulfillment. Um, uh, so absolutely, it drove me to produce a lot of great results. Um, I, another one was the first one I discovered was like, I'm I'm a disappointment. So a lot of it was trying not to disappoint my parents. I don't want to disappoint my parents. So I followed everything by the book and I was a good kid. And, um, you know, I gave them some headaches, but not, I think, not a ton of them. I think my parents would say that I didn't give them a ton of headaches. They don't have to worry too much about me. Um, and so you know, yes, absolutely. And I think that that's the thing It's like, we don't want to get in the rut where we think that that stuff is bad. It has helped us to produce results. The thing that I found is that when I'm chasing, silencing those thoughts, there's no fulfillment in it. Like I have a fulfilling life now, but it's because I'm not trying to counteract some negative programming that I wound up with because I'm a human being. And now I get to say what I want. Like what I want is I want to make a difference. What I want is for people around me to be empowered. What I want is for women to discover their leadership and get that it doesn't have to be the old conversation of what leadership is. So I, that is fulfilling. And, and I don't need anyone to tell me I'm great at that. I just, to me, day after day, knowing that I'm making that difference with individuals and organizations, like it's just... I don't know. It's really awesome. Like I, I just super happy. It's interesting. Cause we did, uh, I keep referencing the talk we did yesterday and the client who set that up started the conversation by saying, you know, we did work for them last year in 2021 as well. And, and she said, you know, we did a survey on what we should do in 2022 and we got so many responses to bring grace and Brian back and so here we are and they sort of doubled down and we're doing twice as much this year. She actually said the number one request. That was the thing that like blew me away. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So when you get that feedback, how does it hit you? How does it impact you? That's great. I can be with it now because it's like a fulfillment of what I say that my life is for. Mm. Because it, yeah. it hit on the impact, it hit on the empowerment and, and all that stuff. It's interesting because I think for me, we went through the Georgetown coaching program together, Grace and I, and we're going to connect the dots on how she got to that place. But when I was there, one of my mentors and one of my coaches said to me, Brian, you are so obsessed with adding value to your clients. You just need to coach them. You don't need to add value to them. Coaching is the value add. Mm -hmm. And I've really reflected and thought about that. And for a while I was like, damn, like I think that's a profound statement. And what is it about me that I need to constantly add value to people? And then as I kept reflecting on it, I was like, no, like 
I get fulfillment out of adding value to them, whether that is, you know, helping them get a new gig and introducing them to somebody or hosting them at a retreat or talking to them when they're going through something difficult and they're not paying me for the service or sending them, you know, my newsletter or providing this podcast or, you know, my whole being or bringing them together on a zoom call. That is what I'm here to do. My, I'm here to do to add value to people's lives. So why continue the podcast? Hopefully it adds value to people's lives. Why write a book? Hopefully it adds value to people's lives. Why coach? I want to add value to people's lives. And, and the reason I bring that up is because when we got that feedback, it's like, yeah, that's affirming. Great. We are adding value. And I think that's different than being externally motivated. I'm not doing it to get that feedback. Like I know we're doing a good job. That's the cherry on top. And so I think sometimes we say achievement is bad or you're being achievement minded is bad. I don't think that's true. I just don't think that can be the only thing. That's probably not going to be the driver for me. My driver is going to be the mission to help others enjoy success, unlock their potential, see new possibilities. That's the mission. And then if I get someone who says, Hey, Brian, you changed my life. Like, yeah, that's, that's a nice cherry on top, but I'm not doing this because I need that validation, but I am trying to add value as much as I can. As I go on this rant, what's coming up for you? No, I think, I don't think it was a rant. I think it was really, really powerful because what I heard you saying is there's a difference between adding value to counteract some sense of lack within yourself, as opposed to adding value um, that is an affirmation of some greater purpose that you have. And for me, I think that that, I think a lot of achievement ends up being, you know, I've just left Georgetown Law School and I was working in the career, uh, the Office of Career Strategy, supporting students in finding legal jobs in the private sector. A lot of my students came and they were having these crucible moments where they, for the first time, weren't getting all A's and being this achiever. And they were realizing their whole sense of identity was about achievement for achievement's sake. That's different than my students who came in and said, you know, I really want to make a difference for indigent populations, help me find a job. So I think when you have achievement for achievement's sake, the thing is it will feel good and you will keep chasing the carrot. And there will come a point where you, there's some silence and stillness and you realize that it's not fulfilling. It's so interesting. I'm now reflecting on my own journey and there's a book called The Gift of Failure. And I'm different from you. I never got straight A's. Never. I was a <laughs> mediocre student, like 3-0 student. I, you know, I got cut from my basketball team. I uh, wanted to do Teach for America when I graduated college. They said, no, nah, we're good. We don't want you. <laughs> um, like, I got laid off from a job early in my career. Like, I had plenty of failures that I never... And I never craved straight A's. That wasn't something that was even attainable to me. So why would I crave it? And and so, and my parents joke, they said, we knew Brian would be good at psychology, but if we told him that he would have gone and become like a plumber or something completely different. <laughs> um, but they didn't, they like, one of the gifts my parents gave me is like, they're my older brother was better academically than I was. And we could see it from a young age. And so they let me be, um, they really didn't challenge me. And perhaps there were 
times where they could have. For example, I actually probably could have done some writing for our newspaper uh, or the yearbook, and I didn't do that. So, but because they gave me space, I was able to explore even into my 20s to find the profession I'm in now. And I'm grateful that they gave me space rather than tell me what I had to do or what I should do. And so it's interesting as you're speaking, because I think we're similar in a lot of ways, but I think what we value today is very similar. How we got here, as I'm hearing you, I think is very different. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, by the time I was, you know, 26, how old was I? I don't even know. Yeah, like 26 years old. Like I was in private practice doing something that I really love to do. And I was pretty clear on, hey, I love doing this thing. Um, and, you know, it took a while to get there. I was a lost puppy out of college. I, I, I did not think about going to law school or getting my MBA or most of my friends were going on to wall street and wanted to make money. Like, Nope, that wasn't going to be me. You know? And I, I came home from college and my freshman year and I was taking a lot of sociology classes and African-American studies classes. And I turned to my parents and I was like, I think I'm going to major in African-American studies. And here they are. Like, I'm really lucky. They were paying for my private education. And I'm, they're like, what are you, what are you thinking about that? Okay. I, I guess let's find like, <laughs> but, and then everyone would be like, well, what are you going to do with this sociology, African-American studies, political science degree? To your point, I ended up majoring in sociology, minor in African-American studies and political science. But yeah, I mean, I'm just grateful that I think the earlier you can experience those failures and learn that it's okay. Like you'll be okay. I think for me, it, it created a fearlessness in me that when we get rejected from a proposal or I don't get a client, I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go find another one. Um, but I still have a strong drive to achieve. Like I'm still highly competitive. Um, I care about how much money I make. I care about, you know, how the book does. I care about how this podcast does, but it doesn't define me. And that that is what I think a lot of people struggle with is the definition, the identity attaching it to the achievement. And, and so I, I do, I attach the achievement to impact and knowing that I'm making an impact, but I still get bumps every time I get feedback that's positive on how I'm doing or rewarded for how I'm doing. But I think it's the cherry. It's not the cake. It's, it's not the base. It's not the foundation. Um, yeah. Back to you. So you mentioned you worked at Georgetown, you know, in the career center, but how do you make your way from this law, you know, life and career to then working at a career center, um, you know, in, in the law school, right? Um, how, how do you, how do you make that journey? What, what fill in the gaps for us? Yeah, I think, so I, I left the law firm, uh, the second law firm after about two years and went and finally had the courage. And I think what you just said actually highlights, you know, when, you know, I was somebody who kind of was so certain of the path. I, I remember my, my sister who's right under me kind of floundered, didn't know what she wanted to do, doing this job and that. And I'm just like, who are these people who don't know what they want to do? They're just stupid. Like I just was such a judgmental little jerk. Um, but what I didn't have, which you, what you were talking about was the courage to like go and deviate from like a path set out for me. Right. I just was like, my parents have said that this will bring happiness. Like if I do all these things, I will find a great husband and then I will live a happy life. And um, so I just didn't have the courage to strike out on my own. Fast forward post 2013, post landmark forum, starting to like, what do I actually want? What do I actually want? Um, and I really did. I 
saw the show Scandal and I really was like that Olivia Pope, it, it merges the things I liked about both of those fields because I loved journalism. I loved it. I loved meeting people. I loved helping people. I, I just, it was such, it's such a cool job, right? You just get to be curious about people in their lives and they let you in and you get to ask questions and probe and probe and probe. And so that was the thing I loved about journalism. Um, and the writing gave me a lot of anxiety. It's like, there's this great scene in the wire. I don't know. Have you seen the wire? Yeah. So season four is about the newsrooms. It's probably the most accurate media depiction I've ever seen of like life in the newsroom. And the the editor like wakes up and like calls the newsroom at like 2am and is like, did I spell this this way? Or did I spell it that way? And I was like, oh, that's happened to me at least 10 times. So there's like a lot of, all of my friends, when we left the newsroom, you're like, I sleep better because you're always worried. Did I spell this right? Did I get that wrong? So, you know, kind of being a crisis manager was the part of journalism I liked, the people part. And then the part of the law I like, which is like, I really did like helping like large companies. I liked helping organizations. The legal part was like kind of dry for me. Um, and the legal writing was a little dry for me. Like I wanted to be able to have a nice turn of phrase. I didn't want to be locked in by the, the the parameters of what the law said was possible in whatever thing we were fighting. And so I wanted to be a crisis communicator. Um, ended up, uh, you know, talking somebody into letting me come and help uh, with her company, and did that for about a year. Very intense world. Uh, we were working with, you know, Fortune 100 companies and impact brands. I really loved it. And I met my husband and it that pace just didn't work. It was actually more intense than the law firm. Um, but it was cool because I just, we, I could come up with super creative solutions and having the legal background, you know, was definitely, I think, a competitive edge. Understanding the media and like what happens behind the scenes in the media, how things actually get published, what's going on between editors and reporters also was like an edge. Um, Grace, what were your parents' reaction though when you say I'm leaving law to go do crisis communication? Were they like hitting their hand on their forehead? Like what what are you doing here? I think, you know, it was, I had, they, they saw kind of this metamorphosis that was happening as I started doing the personal development work. I don't think it was, they weren't shocked. Now, when I left the firm, my dad was like the crisis firm. My dad was like, see, so now you know not to go work for a small company. And I was like, yeah, that's not, that wasn't the lesson, but thank you for your feedback. Um, You know, I think um, I also ended up marrying somebody who they did not expect me to marry, right? Like uh, my husband is white, he's Jewish. My parents are very Christian and had said, don't bring home someone who's not a Christian. And they love my husband. They love my Jewish son that, you know, like it's, it's, they also have gone through a metamorphosis as I've been on this journey. Um, And so um, I think they just know now I'm kind of creating my life and all over the place, but in a really good place. And they see that like, we're ridiculously happy that we're now doing as well, if not better than when I was in the law firms, but in a way that is by our own design. And so I think they're supportive, even if it doesn't always all make sense to them. Grace, you mentioned judgment earlier. And as you're talking about your Jewish son and, you know, marrying a white guy and sort of going against maybe what the expectations were from your family or even religious from a religious standpoint, what's hitting me now is misconceptions. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So when people see you, what do they often get wrong? Mm, That's a great question. So I would say some of like my achievement was because of this. So, you know, me, I'm, I'm five foot nine and pretty slim and Grace looks like a model. Grace, like, let's, let's just call it what it is. Like Grace looks like a model. And, and so like, this is the piece. So, you know, black, tall, skinny, pretty, uh, I could see the labels coming out so quickly. People, judge you based on what you look like. Are you done up? Are you dressed down? Um, and then even law, law school, right? Oh, wait, she's actually got a brain in there, right? So, um, and then there's some racism and then there's some sexism and then there's like, there, or there's an assumption of maybe where you came from, but I've got these two parents. My dad has a PhD. Like there's so many stereotypes that I would imagine when you walk into a room or you walk into a synagogue or you walk into a church or you walk like that, the judgments of what people think you are. And then your identity is all of our identities are more complex than what we look like. All of them. Mm -hmm. Yet we make heuristics and stereotypes and we judge people so quickly. So maybe the question is, is not what do people get wrong, but what have you learned about people viewing you as a certain way and just not really understanding who you are and how does that impact how you show up for other people? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, I've learned that it's not my business. My mom would say that's not your, their, their impression of you is not your business. So I think, um, and I would say I spent years, you know, growing up, I was made fun of called ugly, things like that. I looked, I mean, these cheekbones on a, on a 10 year old are kind of weird. They, they work when you're, they work in your twenties and thirties, uh, but they did not, you know, young. And so I looked really weird to the other kids. And so I was made fun of a lot. Were you tall? Um, were you tall from a young age? Yeah. Tall, uh, lanky, too skinny. They would make fun of how skinny my legs were. Right. So all of that stuff. Um, so you didn't, you didn't, you weren't acknowledged for your looks in a positive way until when? Uh, probably 19, 20. So college is when people mm-hmm. are like, whoa, like, were yeah. you ever approached to model and stuff like that? Yep. But you don't look at you. You don't even, that's it. She gave me a yep. So Grace, Grace has <laughs> no problem talking, but then it's talking about looks and she gives me a yep. Grace, no one ever approached me about modeling. Just in, just in case you were wondering, Grace and I were on a call once <laughs> in a Zoom for this company. And Grace, do you remember what it was? We were talking it was about- You and I were doing a staring, like a be with exercise where we're staring at each other and then what do, being silent and then what do you notice? Yeah. And in the chat, people are like, I noticed that Grace is beautiful. And then like this, that, and the other. And I'm not in corporate America, right? So I talk pretty freely. I don't, I'm not worried about HR coming after me for saying something I shouldn't say. And I just turned to the people on the Zoom. I'm like, guys, no one's saying anything about the way I look. No one. So I say that to say, though, like, looks, it's interesting. So from a young age, you didn't necessarily maybe see yourself as beautiful from a look standpoint. Um, But then you're starting to get validation for the way you look in college. What was that validation like? What was that experience like to go from someone who is maybe um, you, I think you just were like ugly. Like people would use that word to now people saying you're, you're beautiful. 
I, that's gotta be like, I've never had that transition from either. Like, it's just, all right, that's Brian. Um, I've gotten compliments, but it's like, it's, it's gotta be interesting having that. I'm going to say transformation. I'm not overnight, but like people mm-hmm. seeing you for what you look like, but when you were brought up, you, it sounds like your identity was attached to either, you know, sports in some ways, but also to your, your mind. Mind. Yeah. It's definitely my mind and then music. So I think it's not a part of, it's not a big part of my identity. Um, and it's probably something I'm pretty uncomfortable with, but just, I don't like to be necessarily looked at. Um, but it was just because of the, the kids were pretty cruel. Um, and knowing, you know, I, I remember walking in, uh, in seventh or eighth grade into a room and my best friend was super hot. Right. And so walking in the room, she was sitting in there and it was our next class and ta- this new guy is uh, there and I have a total crush on him. And two other guys are telling saying, well, and the ugliest girl in the class is Grace. And so I hear the tail end and my best friend Liz is like, I was going to, she was like, she was like on it about to like, let them have it. But I had walked in on the tail end of that. So, you you know, I, I knew what people were saying behind my back. So it's just, it's interesting how your identity does get formed pretty young. So I was smart. And I just, that was something I was pretty certain of is that I'm, I'm pretty smart um, and uh, then was good at music. And so that's what I, I stuck with. And um, yeah, the other stuff just felt uncomfortable. And when people would say stuff, it felt weird. But I also knew there was a point, you know, I, I, I don't not wear makeup, you know, um, but I'm also, you know, I'm really comfortable and I will be a total schlub with you. Um, it's just not a big part of my identity. Um, yeah, music, and something what, probably I'm comfortable with more than anything. what was what was music? What music? Uh, so I grew up. We played piano, and then I played alto saxophone in high school, and I was like in the all state band. Um, and so, yeah, music. You know, we traveled the world um, in the all state band, and uh, that was something that was real formulative for me. Was was the in- involvement in music, and it's. Uh, just a big part of my life. I love music. You know, I'll go to the Kennedy Center. I love listening to classical music. I love kind of everything in between. Um, yeah. And, and going back to just the judgment piece. So it sounds like for you, it's uncomfortable if people are judging you based on what you look like. So it, it sounds like you don't spend a whole lot of time judging others for how they appear or what they look like, or you do? I can, I can get real. I, I can, I can be pretty, I, I think that that maybe is, it's so interesting. Cause like, you know, hopefully this isn't too much of a spoiler, but like, you know, Ted Lasso um, with the way that Nate turned at the end of the second season. And I was like, what is that? Like he was so bullied in the first season. And my sister's like, you know, bullies become, bullies become bullies or the bullies become bullies sometimes. And so she was like, that wasn't a surprising turn of events for me. And I think I I didn't, I don't think I became a bully, but I think I became, I was so self-critical, right. I'd go home and I'd wish, wish I wasn't so ugly and so weird. Um, And so I can, I can, I can be prone to pick people apart. Now I just know that about myself. And so there is a, I've managed a lot of that, but yeah, I can, I can be tough on like, you know, watching TV. I can be like, she's funny looking. And Andy's like, I think she's hot. And I'm like, Oh, look at her teeth. And Andy's like, wow, you're tough. Right. So I can be that way. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think the old adage hurt people, hurt people. Um, Yeah. It makes sense. All right. So I think we covered that side, the, the awkward side that Grace probably 
you know, didn't, <laughs> didn't think we were going to go to today, but I was, I was curious about it. And I will say the one thing that's really great was, uh, uh, you know, looking the way I look and my husband's shorter than me. Um, and you know, graying, he's a silver Fox. I think it's, I think it's hot. And, um, you know, going to these functions with his family friends and, you know, I obviously I'm the black woman standing out and I'm tall and thin and, you know, people coming up and going, what do you do? And like, you know, I think thinking I'm going to say like, I work at Subway or something. And, um, so I think it, it added gravitas, you know, when I was meeting his family that like, I, one of my friends like made a joke about how like he was going to be my sugar daddy or something. And I'm like, I have my own. Are you kidding me? I love this man with like everything in my BA. That is why I'm with him. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, that, yeah. Yeah. We were in LA once, uh, like on a vacation when we were early on, when we were dating and we were like, on. Um, one of these like major shopping strips in LA and people are taking pictures. And I was like, I think they see like a tall black woman and a like, graying white man. And they think they have to be somebody. <laughs> he's gotta, he's gotta be famous. If she, <laughs> Andy, we love you. I know you will listen to this. Uh, by the way, Andy's a, a stud tennis player, by the way, he's a jock, which Super stud, if, yeah. if you meet Andy, he's like the kindest, sweetest guy. I, I just got to see him in competition mode at some point. And like, I, I can't wait to see. To he, he's see really competitive. He hides it behind that like sweet veneer, but he, when he gets competitive, it's all out. So, oh. so, so back to you. So you, you start to sort of find yourself, you realize, Hey, this, I, I like this intense job, you know, but maybe this isn't my career. So what, what caused you to pivot out, out of the communication crisis firm? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I did, I, um, yeah, I, I liked the crisis. I had at that point met Andy and knew that he was my future. Um, it was really intense. I had done in a landmark program I had coached and like loved it. Like I was like, oh my gosh. And if I go back, like the, my friends back in like junior high, like always, everybody's like, you should be a therapist. You should be a counselor. So I just always like love listening to people's issues. When I read an article, my favorite part is the comments. Like how are people actually reacting to it, responding to it? I remember having a friend who was like, I never read the comments. Who cares? And I was like, that's all I care about. I read the article so I can see how, how the world is responding. Um, and so uh, I coached the first time and it just, it was like, I was home. I just loved it. And um, so I started just saying, like, I was just going to coach people. Like, I was like, I'm, I'm going to start coaching. And it was like the, like a week after I declared it out loud, like, Andy, I think I want to start like coaching on the side. Like a friend sent me another friend of his was like, are you good? Are you coaching? I know you were like kind of doing that in a landmark program. And I was like, I actually am. So I had like my first client. He knew he was my first client. And it was just, it was amazing. And so when it was time to leave the PR firm, I just was more intentional. I was like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go do this program at Georgetown that I've been looking at to like, for me, it wasn't, you know, I know the thing about coaching that is a blessing and a curse is like, you can just hang a shingle and not get any training. And I really think, you know, it really works for people to be trained, properly trained as a coach. Cause I do think I'm, we're not therapists. We're not trained in that. We don't go there. And knowing the line, I think is really important for not doing damage with people. Um, and so went and did the Georgetown program and was more intentional about 
coaching along the way, but yeah, I kept getting clients like people. And then I would just help people for free because really I just love helping people. And then they'd send me clients. And so it was just, it just became, it became a thing. And that was, I think over five years ago. And um, now I'm just more intentional. I have a beautiful slate of, you know, I practice is probably 12 really amazing, maybe 13, 14 amazing clients. And then I also have another full-time job. So this is one full-time job. And then I um, have another full-time job and I have my husband and uh, lead these programs for Landmark a couple times a year. And it's just awesome. When we were at Georgetown, one of the cool activities that we did was sharing a watershed moment. Do you remember what your watershed moment was that you shared with our class? That is a good question. It might've been 2013. Let's let's broaden the question. Yeah. Is there a watershed moment, or would you say that 2013 was like a watershed year that caused you to to transform, or is there a moment that you think has really impacted your your course and, and your journey? That's I think so. I think 2013 was a watershed year. I think doing the landmark forum was a watershed moment when I got what that was. That was a watershed moment in my life. I think. Um, the first time I coached, I discovered the thing that had been blocking me around love. And that may have been what I wrote about. And that was discovering that the tape that just naturally plays is I'm unlovable, which is why all of these achievements were like my way of hawking for love. And just seeing that, sharing that, no longer giving that dominion over me, I met my husband. And so, um, yeah, I met my husband when I saw that probably within seven weeks, I met Andy. Mm. And so, yeah, that's, that's, I may have shared about that actually. And, and you and Andy do some things together. We just had a, a group call where you shared how you set goals and how you think about goals together. Can you share a little bit about what you're intentional with, with Andy, or even what you're intentional with by yourself to make sure that you're showing up the way that you want to show up? Yeah. So it's really cool. Um, we, we once a year, we sit down and we still need to do it for this year. We've been a little derelict. Um, we sit down and we just envision, okay, if this were the best year of our life, what would we have? And then we like paint a picture, like all the huge, and we like really like swing out like crazy um, with all the results, things that we would do. Uh, I set like, a, like targets, like real concrete targets for my, here's what I would bring in in my coaching practice. Um, like last year, the number I picked was like ridiculous to me. I just thought like, this is ridiculous, but I'm going to say it, I exceeded it. Um, and then we, um, we write it down and we just do like buckets of life, like family, spirituality, career, um, our relationship, like, what are the, like, what are the experiences, things that we want to do? And then we, um, we write that down and then we check in once a month. The first year we did it, we didn't check in and we we did not check in once a month. And so we did like half of it. Um, now we check in once a month and um, usually we nail about 85 to 90%. And usually about halfway through the year we go, wait, were we really swinging out? Cause like, maybe we should have thought bigger. Um, and so, yeah, that's what we do once a year. And I think it just has us be really intentional about the things that bring us joy awesome. and the relationships that bring us joy. Yeah. Beautiful. You mentioned you have a full-time gig. Uh, you also do a lot of coaching and facilitating with me. Um, so talk about what you're up to now 
and then we'll wrap up. Awesome. Yeah, I think so. Now I am, I do a lot of work with strong skills. You and I are doing this. Um, I, I'm doing a high potential accelerator. Um, and I just love, this is the first time we're doing this accelerator and I love the, my clients. And then I'm still facilitating with you through strong skills. And then uh, I'm about to start a new gig at that same law firm. They came back to me. Uh, it's a full circle moment. Um, but now with the coaching and facilitation um, and all of that, those skills, I'm going to be um, managing their women's initiative and really looking at um, what does it look like to empower female attorneys? Um, I think the the successes and pitfalls of my own journey are going to be really helpful for people who are on their own journeys. Um, I'll be able to apply a little coaching, doing events, all of that. So looking at retention um, and just really empowering the women attorneys at this firm. And I, I'm excited about it because I think my life's purpose is really at least in part to discover the things that are going to help diverse um, and women and, you know, anybody else who feels marginalized in the workplace, those types of individuals discover kind of the tools, the types of programs that will make a difference and then like implement those like at a large scale. So, um, so I'm going to be starting that actually this Monday and that'll be my other full-time job is um, managing the women's initiative at this law firm. It's awesome. And for just to just add a little more color to Grace's accelerator, we call it a hypo accelerator. So it's for high potential. So a lot of Grace's clients are in their 20s and their 30s, some even in their 40s and 50s, but they're people that feel like they have another level to get to. And so Grace coaches them on that. It's an amazing group. So she has 10 spots that are going to open again in July. So we're actually starting to fill those now. And then I run my own accelerator, which is mostly executives, a lot of C-suite executives. And mine also will launch in July. We're both in our, with our accelerator groups now. And the accelerator, the idea behind it is one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, so Grace coaches these people one-on-one. -on -one. I coach these people one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and then once a month, Grace gets with her 10 people over Zoom and they talk about a theme and they learn from each other. And I do the same with my cohort. And then we each have a retreat every single year where we bring these people together so they can learn together. So the idea of the accelerator is really to use one-on-one -on -one coaching, uh, to emphasize one-on-one -on -one coaching. And then the thesis behind the accelerator is if you get one-on-one -on -one coaching, you're going to be willing and vulnerable and open with a group about best practices for learning and growing and developing. So I'm on my eighth one um, in July and Grace will be on her second one in July. So that's a quick little plug. If if you're an executive and you're either considered a high potential at your company uh, or you're in the C-suite and you're listening to this and you're interested in either one of those, you can email me, brian at strongskills.co. And I'm happy to put you in touch with Grace or talk to you about my program as well. Uh, both Grace and I, if you want to learn more about us, you can go to strongskills.co as well. And then we're both on LinkedIn. So uh, you can connect with us there. Uh, Grace, anything else you want to promote, plug, share uh, with our audience? No, I just, this has been wonderful. It's always great being with you. Thank you for your friendship and just for who you are. You're just one of the most phenomenal people. You are too. I love you. I, I'm love so excited you. for where you're going. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Grace. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. We sit down and we just envision, okay, if this were the best year of our life, what would we have? 
And then we like paint a picture, like all the huge, and we like really like swing out like crazy um, with all the results, things that we would do. Uh, I set like a, like targets, like real concrete targets for my, here's what I would bring in in my coaching practice. Um, like last year, the number I picked was like ridiculous to me. I just thought like, this is ridiculous, but I'm going to say it. I exceeded it. Um, and then we, um, we write it down and we just do like buckets of life, like family, spirituality, career, um, our relationship, like what are the, like what are the experiences, things that we want to do? And then we, um, we write that down and then we check in once a month. 